Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. Today we'll be talking about gate crash previews, workshopping with Twan, and Serious Eats at the North Market in Columbus, Ohio. We're here today with Twan P. Ponertown again, Anthony Michaels. You may remember him. He was on a few episodes ago when we had him talk about his workshop strategies and thoughts. And we brought him back today because he finally reset the counter on the Twan 007 Top 8 Countdown. Not only did he Top 8, he made Top 4 and made the finals with his workshop deck. We thought we'd bring him in to talk about it a little bit. We know the exact time span where Tuan did not top eight, where we dropped off the Tuan top eight countdown. No, I thought that was too mean. Uh, okay. Last time he top eighted was the Sunday after Gen Con 2011. Is that right, Tuan? Yeah. It was a dark time until uh, a few weeks ago right. for me. So we're looking at, you know, a year and four months. Wow, that must be devastating to your psyche, Tuan. No, I bounced back. I'm good to go now. <laughs> Yeah, we're glad to have him back, and we're looking forward to talking to him about his workshop stuff. I think first, though, we're going to talk about Gatecrash a little bit. That's the new set coming out in a few weeks. Spoiler season has already been kicked off. We're seeing lots of new cards, and I think our assessment so far is that none of them is all that exciting. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I made a list of, looks like, ten of them. Even those, I think there's maybe one or two that could possibly be a one of in a fringe deck or somebody's rogue creation in vintage. You want to just go down the list and talk about them short and briefly? I suppose we can do that. I guess we'll just start. The first one I, I listed was High Priest of Penance, which is a 1-1 one, one creature. He costs a black and a white, and whenever he's dealt damage, you vindicate something. That ability seems pretty sweet, but then you realize that he's just a 1-1, and without some cool third interaction, he's just going to die when he vindicates. Sometimes that's good, though. Especially if you can get him to trade with another one, or another one toughness creature, and then vindicate something. I think that's not bad. That's a 2 for one Yeah, that's true. problem is, when I was thinking about this for vintage applications, too often you're just not going to be able to get this guy to die. He'll be attacking for one, though. That's true. Yeah. And no one's going to, like, the only thing you could use is, like, a wall for a confidant or a snapcaster maze. I doubt anyone's going to be uh, foolish enough to swing into that. Or, if, like, vintage, having life just being a resource, like, someone right. can just take one all day without blocking him or having to deal with it. Sure. If he was a 1-2, on the other hand, I think there might be a little bit more gas in that card from a vintage perspective, but it'd probably be too broken in another format. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Okay, so that's one down. How about Signal the Clan? <laughs> Kind of you are familiar with the card Intuition, which sees a lot of play in Legacy and has seen play in Vintage before. This is pretty much a terrible version of Intuition, right? Yeah, like, when you called it a crappy Intuition for Dudes, I was just like, oh, well, Intuition for Dudes doesn't seem terrible. But then I read the card, and it's like GIFs, where you have to get three different named dudes, which really makes that kind of sour. Yeah, and if it was genuinely an Intuition for your guys... Like, you'd be able to get a lot more things. Like, imagine getting three blood ghasts. Right. Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, if it got three of the same thing, it would be great. Well, not great, but it would be a consideration as far as playable cards go. Yeah. At least it's instant it, speed, and I mean, it's more affordable than intuition at red-green, well, in terms of total right. mana cost. Yeah, but in terms of, like, color, like, intuition is blue. <laughs> what deck in vintage is going to splash for a red-green, like, creature, random card generator. No lie on that one, buddy. Uh, I mean, I think the only thing would be that you figure you're playing three great creatures in your deck. I'm not sure what those are. One of them is probably Tarmogoy. Every time you play Signal of Fans, one of each of those three creatures. I don't think you don't even get to pick, though. It's a, it's random. But, but yeah, if you get your random one of three guys, like, that seems terrible still. I, I really, yeah, I don't know what's going to be going on with this card. Yeah, it seems aggrocentric, but it's instant, so it's the kind of thing that you can play end of turn. But if you save up the mana to play at end of turn, that means you didn't drop another dude on your main phase, which seems subpar in red and green. Right. Yeah. And I think the the creatures that you have to be into, well, I guess signaling for would have to immediately impact the board. Like you'd right. have to get either like fire imp, like flame tongue kavu, or necrotal, like something that like you're not just going to get a vanilla beater. Oh, man. Yeah. 
I mean, if you're talking about getting things like Necrotal and Flame Tonkabu, those cost four, so... Uh-huh. In the end, you're going to pay six. It might be able to fit to a Jun deck, though, with Cascade, but, I mean, Cascading into another dude versus uh, Couldn't a card that does anything. A dude? Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Alright, two down. Next one on my list was Whispering Madness, which is a... It's essentially Windfall that costs four. It costs two blue and black. Each player discards his or her hand, then draws cards equal to the greatest number of cards a player discarded this way. And then it has Cypher, which is the Demir House ability, which says that then, which means after you've resolved the spell, you may exile this spell card encoded on a creature you control. Whenever that creature deals combat damage to a player, its controller may cast a copy of the encoded card without paying its hand cost. Basically, I think what it comes down to is is four mana windfall playable? I at first dismissed this card, but then you pointed out in your list that this is pretty much just a better diminishing returns, and I would agree with that. Like, any place that you are playing black and you were playing diminishing returns, I don't see why you wouldn't be playing Whispering Madness because the drawback is just less. Right. Even if you yeah. can't use the Cypher, it's better than diminishing returns. Yeah, and I don't think Cypher is a good mechanic on that card because the decks in Vintage that use Diminishing Returns or Windfall, I mean, the only creatures they had was their Tinker Target or Empty the Warrens. Oh man, Lightsteel Colossus with Cyphered Whispering Madness on it. Yeah, but like, at that point, at that point, you're probably already losing the game if your opponent has Tinkered and cast Whispering Madness. What's that card that draws cards equal to the number of cards your opponent has discarded? Dream Salvage? Yeah, Dream Salvage. That would be hard. I played against a deck that played Dream Salvage to very good effect that used Windfall and Wheel of Fortune in, in order to cycle his hand and then the opponent's hand as well, and then played Dream Salvage to draw more cards. It was basically you'd end up Windfalling into 14 cards, or I guess 13, rather. I mean, I guess that might have potential. You're, you're looking at a, a blue-black deck that would draw a bunch of cards. It does pitch the force of will. <laughs> Not only you does know. it pitch to force of will, it also pitches to contagion. Oh, that's true. Boom. Oh, <laughs> that Dream Salvage deck was built by Joe Tanner, by the way. I should give him a shout-out for that deck, because it was pretty innovative. It was a, a very fast combo deck that was totally unlike other decks I had seen. Yeah, I gotta say, like, I keep on coming across Dream Salvage when I'm looking through cards, and that, <laughs> that, that card is just on the edge of being busted, and it's just like, could be so fun. Yeah. Maybe it'll happen. Well, I, I think the, the other question we have to ask is, would there be a deck that you'd want to play this card and use its Cypher ability? So, I mean, you'd be looking at playing probably something like four Snapcasters, four Star Confidants, and Whispering Madness. Do you get a benefit from using Windfall repeatedly in a deck like that? It's just so dangerous. I mean, it's the reason why we've seen less draw sevens get played recently, because... Fewer draw sevens. <laughs> It's the reason we've seen fewer draw sevens get played more recently because it's just so dangerous to give your opponent a full grip. And after the first turn, it's it's hard to say that you're going to be the one who's getting the advantage on the draw cards equal to the greatest number drawn this way. Another thing too is uh about vintage is like after you deplete your opponent's hand, when you fuel them back up, the counter spells are so cheap that like if they just rip a fluster storm, you probably just get blown out right there. That's true. If you're trying to combo out. If you're just, like, windfalling for value, then you could just pass the turn and swing. But. Yeah, I think this card is on the edge. I think it's one that if I was feeling risky, I would take a flyer on, get a place out. But I, I don't really see it doing very much right now. Yeah, and there's no decks right now, like you uh, stated earlier, that run draw sevens. So right. you have to design a deck that can benefit off of this over the cheaper draw sevens. Right, right. Yeah, you'd have to run, want to run a lot of draw sevens. Yeah, there's already a bunch to run. I mean, you got Time Twister and Windfall, Wheel if you want to run Red. That's Tinker for Jar. How much farther do you want to go? And all of those cost three instead of four. Alright, so that's three down. Next one on my list was Night Veil Spectre. This is a three drop that costs blue-black hybrid mana. So blue-black, blue-black, blue-black. It's a 2-3 flyer, and when it deals damage to an opponent, that player exiles the top card of his or her library. And you can play cards exiled with Night Veil Spectre. So it's like a bigger, different kind of Hypnotic Spectre. Well, it does It does the exact opposite of Hypnotic Spectre, though. <laughs> How you so? Know? Well, because like, Hypnotic Spectre makes your opponent discard a card from their hand. Right. You know, This is more of like a, a pseudo-expensive Dark Confidant, I would think. 
because it will, instead of drawing from your deck, you're drawing from your opponent's deck, so you're going to gain, like, a spell, so it's more hard draw than hard to discard. It could also yeah. be just straight-up terrible when you get a total blank for your deck. Right. You mean, like, you're playing against Dredge or something? Bingo. <laughs> Although, if you're playing against Dredge and resolving a 3-drop, three 2-3 three flyer, I mean, you might be alright in that situation, because you're obviously winning anyway. Maybe. I mean, a lot of people are talking about the fact that you can play this off of Ritual, but that means you're already two for one in yourself to get this guy on the right. board, so you're going to yeah. really need to get some value out of him in order to get to recoup that Ritual. Yeah, I'm not really... I, Hypnotic Specter isn't played, and this seems not as good as Hypnotic Specter. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to get the kind of disruptive effect that even Hypnotic Specter would provide, because... Oh, you stole the top card of my library. Well, that doesn't actually immediately affect my game plan. Right. Yeah. Also, um, at the cost of two, there's Dark Confidant, which actually draws you a card. That draws you a card that you know you wanted because you put it in your own deck. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking three drop, except for the ritual effect, I think I'd play Thada Adele over this guy anytime, and nobody plays Thada Adele either. The cards that you exile out of this, they stay exiled. Can you play them at any time? Yeah, as long as the Night Vale Spectre is play, you should be able to play. Oh, okay. But yeah, you don't necessarily need to play it right away. So okay. If you get your opponent's Yawgmoth will, which, hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. You can play it when you have a great draw. No, that's kind of neat. I feel like the, the the hype of this card is the same of, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, that tutor, or it wasn't a tutor, but like uh, you could go into your opponent's deck and get a yeah. card. What is that called? Oh, yeah, Praetor's Grasp. Praetor's Grasp. Yeah. That, does that cost three? Yeah, it's like Grim Tutor for your opponent's library. Yeah, I feel like this card has like the same amount of like hype built for it. Like, oh man, it, it seems so cool to be able to do this, but in practicality, in like the real world, when you're on the vintage battlefield, it just does not work how you want it to. Yeah, I would, I would agree. That seems not a good. All right, so what's up next? Illusionist Bracers. Yeah. Let's see, that's an artifact equipment that costs two and has an equipped cost of three. Whenever an ability of the equipped creature is activated, if it isn't a mana ability, copy that ability. You can choose new targets for the copy. I thought about, you know, this has potential applications in an artifact's combo list, like a Forge Master combo, Forge Master status list, but I think what actually holds this back in Vintage is the equipped cost of three. I'd agree. Yeah. Like, there are so many possibilities for combos. This just makes every activated ability nuts. Yeah. But, I mean, you think about it, in Workshop, you have activated abilities like, first and foremost, Forge Master. Tutor for two cards, sacrifice three artifacts, tutor for two cards, that's a lot. Yeah. You have Welder, which certainly had the, got some possibilities being able to switch two cards from play to the graveyard and back. I mean, that's... Um, yeah. yeah. Even even Triskelion, you can you know, pitch counters from Triskelion to deal two damage rather than one. That's that's a big effect. Yeah, it is. Except that it costs 11 to set up. Right. And you can't even use workshop mana to equip that, right. so Shops isn't going to have an easy time getting it on. Shops never have an easy time getting it on. That's a good point. That's true. And if you were to run this in Shops, you have to think of a card you're willing to cut to put this in there. Right. You know, and like, shop lists right now are just so tight because all the cards are so good. Like, I don't, I doubt you're going to cut a tangle wire for this. Even in like a, like my save list, I don't think I would run this over Lightning Greaves. There's nothing else I would cut to play this. Yeah, it also doesn't affect like your metal worker, like you need to make an activation. So yeah, yeah it's I, <laughs> it's got potential, but unless something gets printed that deals ten damage, I don't see it. All right, so we're we're halfway through the list of the cards. Okay. Before you go on, is um Cold Eye Salky is that activated or is that triggered when it does damage? Triggered. There's no creature, like, even with, like, Finkel, Stalky, that scroll three, that's all triggered stuff, right? Yeah. There's, there's no cards that... Is Ophidian? Because Ophidian used to have a colon before it was a Everything that deals damage on combat, or deals damage to draw on combat is triggered. What if you drop this guy on, like, a Grim Lava Mancer? Yeah, you're dealing Of course that's... Yeah, but of course that's, like, going out of a vintage, like, format into, like, something else. Yeah, yeah. It's surprising. Vintage really doesn't have a lot of activated abilities on its creatures. Mm-hmm. Outside of workshops, really, there's, there's not a whole lot. And actually, inside of workshops, you run into things where you're playing null rod stuff like that, where you don't often want the activated abilities on your artifact creatures. That's true. Yeah, it's it's a weird place for vintage. All right, so we're halfway through. <laughs> we're just knocking them all down. Yeah. See that? There's um, nothing playable in these. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. So I don't. There are only eight cards in 150 card set, so it's 
We, we haven't seen a lot, but what we have seen it hasn't been all that exciting. For Vinter. I mean, I guess other people could be excited. Because I know there are some people who are excited about Duskmantle Guildmage in Legacy and Modern, yeah. right? Duskmantle Guildmage is a two-drop Guildmage that has an activated ability. It, its first activated ability is one blue and black. Whenever a card is put into an opponent's graveyard anywhere this turn, that player loses one life, which combos with Mind Crank. Mind Crank, which is a two-cc artifact <laughs> that every time a card hits the graveyard, it deals one damage to the opponent. No, actually, it's every time they take a damage, they mill it. That's it, that's it. I was getting things wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically, you get them to put a card in their graveyard, they lose a life to Dustmantle Gold Mage, and then the Mind Crank triggers, making them mill another card, and then keep your game. Which you could, use, you could use it as another win condition in Dragon. Yes. But I don't, I don't think it'd be... I'm trying to think of vintage applications for this card. I think the only vintage application is whether you're going to play Dustmantle, Guildmage, and Mind Crank. I mean, I don't think it's really going to do anything. I think that Dustmantle is Guildmage is just way too expensive. Right. Because, again, we're looking at a creature that costs two and an ability that costs three. There's way more efficient ways to win. That is true. And if you're looking at it as a fringe hate card against Oath or Dredge, which also put cards into their graveyard, again, it costs five to make that happen. So yeah, I, I don't really see this one going anywhere in this year. I know. I agree. Alright. How about Demir's Charm? This was one that I was really looking forward to. This was one of the ones that should be awesome, but when you see the actual card, it's such a letdown. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after you saw Is It Charm. I like that this and Is It Charm are actually just, it's like Superman and Bizarro Superman. <laughs> It's like it tries to be good, but it just doesn't. It's just not as good. <laughs> There's just cards out there that do what this does better. Well, I mean, that's what they say about all the charms, is that there are always cards that do what they do better, and it's the flexibility that makes them. But the same thing I said about is it charm applies, and in that, in the, like, people play the separate modal cards because they cost one and are super cheap. When you make them cost two, they suddenly are a lot less appealing. And at least, like, with Is It Charm, you had cards that were actually playable. Like, I don't think that there are a lot of people playing Envelop right now. Right. I think I boarded Envelop once. How did it go? I don't think I boarded it. <laughs> you know, I, I have a feeling that Wizards sort of gets scared when it starts messing with the color combination of blue and black. Like, Demir Charm as an instant that costs blue and black could have been insanely powerful, and I feel that Wizards shies away from that power. No. And plus, like, blue and black has, like, dominated the color wheel for so long. Yeah. Anyway, um... I find it unplayable. Like, even when you read the card, like, you, it starts out well, like, counter-target sorcery spell. All right, we might be onto something, but then it says, destroy target creature with power two or less. Um, you're only going to be hitting, like, with Confidant, Snapcasters, Trigon Predators. It doesn't affect Goyf. It doesn't hit any, like, yep. big tinker targets. It's yep. Welder. And then, um... Third ability is just terrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, awful. Th- that's what I was going. That's what I was going into right now. And then like that, it's it's playable until then. And then you look at it. And you're like, look at the top three cards of target player's library. Put one back, and then the rest of the player's graveyard. That is just I don't know. That's not good enough. All that does for me is like fueling dog mass skill. All right, so we come to Biovisionary. I feel like this is this sets Laboratory Maniac. I feel like it's a lot worse than Laboratory Maniac myself. It's a two three. It beats Laboratory Maniac in combat. Boom. Alright, I'm on board. <laughs> Biovisionary is a human wizard creature. It costs one, a green, and a blue. At the beginning of your end step, if you control four or more creatures named Biovisionary, you win the game. We talked about this a little bit before the podcast. We were trying to figure out how easily you could make this work. There are a few options to copy creatures. You use Phantasmal Image, Renegade, Doppelganger. Pyrexia Metamorph is already shown as playable in vintage. Any of those would copy Biovisionary. You don't actually need Biovisionaries to win. I think what we established, though, was that the amount of effort required to get everything on board is significantly greater than other playable combos. Yeah. Like, like Laboratory Maniac. Yeah, Laboratory Maniac is just so much easier to trigger than this guy. Right. And, of course, there's Right of Replication. I think one of the key cut parts of this card is uh, it happens at the beginning of your end step. You don't have to pass the turn and wait for an upkeep. That's an interesting point. 
you know, most cards, it's always like at the beginning of your upkeep, if this, then you win, or if that, then you win. But this one is the end of turn, so I mean, you do have time to work and build, and if you can stop your opponent from like throwing a mon monkey wrench into your strategy, you might be able to pull it off. But using this card in a vintage format, I don't think there's just like you said, there's better combos out there. Yeah, right. much better than at the end step is any time you have four of them in play, you win the game. Because I think that's the distinction that I look for like when, in looking around through the win the game cards. Yeah, there's next upkeep, but there's also win right now, whenever that trigger is met. Yeah. And that's far superior. You don't want to wait it on. That's just opening you up to blowout city. That's true. So what else did I have on this list? We're through 8 of 10. We're looking at Hands of Binding. I hadn't I seen anybody mention this one before, so I had to look this one up. Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the ability is good. I think it has the most potential out of all these cards in different formats. Really? Like I said, That's oh yeah. Because, like, turn 1, you could, like you said, you play your Delver. Then turn 2, if they have, like, a Deathrite Shaman out, or, say, just another Delver, your turn two, your hands are binding it, and like they're locked out. And like one of the most important things now is with the one drops, like Deathrite Shaman and Delver are just so powerful in like, Legacy, which is the closest thing to Vintage. Yeah. But I think this might see some play in some of the formats, or even Modern. Well, yeah, I, I think it's actually pretty good. That's it's a sorcery that costs one in a blue uh, tap target creature and opponent control. That creature doesn't untap during its controller's next untap, uh, and it has sight. Basically, it turns your creature into cross plate. Imagine how crippling it'll be when, like, if you were the Delver player, if your first turn was Delver, and then their first turn was, like, say, Deathrite Shaman, and then you flip Hands of Binding over to flip Delver. Oh, gross. Like, oh, yeah, and then your opponent already knows. Like, oh, geez, I'm going to get locked out right here. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so we're, we're saying this has potential in other formats, still probably not in Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would never, ever want to have this ciphered onto a Dark Confidant or a Snapcaster Mage. Right. There's just, like, other things that I'd rather have in my deck, such as, like, Artifact Bounce for your Tinker Targets or just Lightning Bolt. You know, actually, I realized that I missed a card. I missed a card on the list, but... We'll what card? We'll get to that after Cloudfin Raptor. Cloudfin Raptor is similar to Delver, only it would be more playable in a creature-based deck. I was talking about this earlier, I actually have some problems with Delver because I can't use it in Wizard because I don't have enough spells to flip it, but Cloudfin Raptor would act like Delver. And it is a one-drop Earth Mutant. It's a zero-one flyer. And it has Evolve, which is the Simic guild ability. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, if that creature has greater power or toughness than this creature, put a plus-one, plus-one counter on it. So Cloudspin Raptor grows as we play creatures larger than it. I think the essential problem, though, is that it grows over time, which opens you up to... I don't know, Jace Bounce or Chain of Vapor, just yeah. undoing everything that you did to make Cloudfin Raptor actually carry its own weight. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You also have to think about um, drawing Cloudfin Raptor on, like, turn three or four. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this, the play sequence of playing Cloudfin Raptor and then turn two, a hate bear of some sort, turn three, a hate bear of some sort, and then turn four, Karma Bear. I mean, that gives you a three-four Cloudfin Raptor probably. Yeah. For better or worse. I mean, it did take you four turns to make that 3-4 flyer. And you have Tarmogoyf, which probably wins you the game anyway. That is true. I think I'd rather play Strong Kirk Noble. Isn't that a red card? Yeah, he's one yeah. red, can't be blocked by humans, and every time he deals combat damage to a player, it gets plus one, plus one. That doesn't pitch the force. <laughs> Unless you're playing Painter Servant. Duh. Oh, that's true, that's true. Those were the uh, the ten cards I had on my list. I think uh, all of them were pretty mediocre. I think the only one that's going to be whispering madness. Then the last card that I just saw looking through the spoilers is Enter the Infinite. I gotta look that list. Which costs twelve. You draw cards equal to the number of cards in your library, then put a card from your hand on top of your library. You have no maximum hand size until end of turn. Would you pay twelve to win the game? Yeah, but I would also pay three to win the game. Yes, I would too. I think you're probably referring to Dog and or Tinker. Yep, you got it. There's no way you could easily cheat this into play either. No, enchantments are uh, It is enchantment, right? It's a sorcery. Oh, it's a sorcery. sorcery. That's even harder. Sorceries are even harder to cheat into play. Yeah. Yeah. I, this one's going to be... I, I expect this to get used at some point, but I, I don't think it'll be a good one. People were talking about using it in uh, 
Omni Show, because you can show and tell Omniscience and then play Enter the Infinite, but... Already played show and tell already... Omniscience. Exactly. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, what deck would you even put this in if you were even considering running it? Like, you can't just throw this I, into any standard, I mean, like, Grixis deck. You don't just slot this in somewhere. Unless I'm you sure play EDH. In Vintage, I believe there's infinite better combos than this card. Yeah. Right. Well, certainly infinite cheaper combos that also kill your opponent. Yeah. Alright, so, yeah, Gate Crash, nothing. There's I do like the flavor text on Enter the Infinite. Yeah, have, don't just have an idea, have all of them. Yeah, I think that's probably the best part about these spoilers that I've seen right there. <laughs> have all the ideas. Yes, that quote from Niv is it. <laughs> yeah, alright. On a scale from 1 to 10, all of those are probably unplayable in vintage. Let's talk about little things. From game? No, no, fun. You you won with workshops. No, I got second, and that is the first loser. All right, well, you're still the first loser in all of our... Ah, thank you. So, Twan, you finally won with Twan Facts. You put up a result with a workshop list that doesn't include Trinisphere. Yes, nor Black Lotus. Oh, oh you yeah, skipped I... our Lotus, too? Yeah, it wasn't a permanent mana source. And with Saren right. Potters, I didn't want to be locked into a hand with Black Lotus and something that's playable. Wow. Twan played this at the most recent Team Series Open in Columbus. It was held on December 30th, 2012. It was essentially the last tournament of the 2012 year. So why don't you, uh, why don't you walk us through your tournament experience? It looks like you played five good rounds with Mud. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, <clears throat> round one, I played uh, another workshop deck. Those went kind of how they normally do. Like, first person to resolve Crucible wins, or first person to stack someone out. You have lots of experience in the workshop matchup, right? Yeah, yeah. I find, like, Crucible is the most important card in the matchup. Because it, well, the Crucible gives you the advantage with your smokestacks then, too, right? It's not just smokestack, but, like, your wastelands, you know, and strip mine. Was your opponent playing, like, a heavy aggro, or were they, I know that you play a heavy control game, were they, were they on that, on that page as well? It was a mud deck that had juggernauts, lowstone golems, and the rest of the like tangle wires and thorns in it. Okay. I didn't see any slash panthers, and I did not see any triskelions or but, steel hellkites. Yeah, that was Matt Hazard. Correct. So you uh, you rolled through mud, and then faced dredge in the next round. Yeah, uh, round two I faced dredge, which of course dredge got me game one. Like they get everyone. I think they're like ninety eight percent to win game ones throughout the format. Yeah. Of what you're playing, but due to uh, my ley lines in the voids and having serum powders in the main and uh, bringing piding needles and rafters cages and tabernacles in, games two and three were somewhat of a blowout. I had no problem finding my um, anchor and hate. Yeah, so your plan in that matchup is to serum powder into hate and then play a couple spears and lock them out of their uh, anti hate. Yeah, the only thing I really want to do is either find a ley line or a rafters cage, right, and then uh, play a spear. Or a low sum down. Did your opponent manage to do anything in games two or three? Or was it just... They didn't do anything. I don't know how to say that nicely. Okay, no, no, that's cool. I mean, I understand. That seems... But looking at your list, that seems like what I would expect. Yeah. You played against a Grixis control list, a blue, black, red, pretty yeah. huge list in, in round three. I'd assume you did pretty well, because normally the blue lists have been having trouble with mod recently. Well, blue list, I mean, mud decks are designed to be blue decks, you know, especially if they are running like fluster storms and mental missteps in the main. You know, they don't have the consistency to counter as many things as they used to back when my like, control slave was running around. Oh, right. Yeah, they have a bunch yeah. of deck cards against the workshops. Yeah, I mean, they do have Dark Confidant, which is one of the cards I fear most, hmm. just because it's a uh, permanent and it just draws you into land drops and permanence kind of engage my strategy. Do you feel that your deck is weak against Confidant? No, not so much. But I would imagine that, I mean, especially having things like smokestacks, like you keep up with Confidant pretty well, I would think. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a real problem with it. Okay. Yeah, but so I think I won the die roll on that. One game one and one game two, I believe. And that was it. Then I came to round four. It was supposed to be against Steven Menendi, and I was paired against. And um, this is where I made my biggest mistake of the tournament. It's um, with the new rules where the top seed gets to play first and the top eight. I accepted a draw which was clearly a mistake. We should have played, and I should have played to uh, go first during the top eight. So next time, there will not be any draws. 
Yeah, show no mercy. Yeah. After that, uh, we drew round four, and then it was a cut to the top four. There were 17 players? Yeah, there were 17. And then you, and you played top four against uh, Jacob Filpi, another uh, teammate of yours on Team Sirius, with two-card Monty. Yeah, he was playing two-card Monty, but I do remember, I should have took some notes, but I do remember those games. I had one smokestack at three soot counters, and another one at two. At the oh, same time? <laughs> yes. What the f***? How? Thank God the top eight was on time because it was one of the grindiest matches I've played in the past, like, six months. That was the first time I swept the board. And then I had to sweep the board. I think I had a smokestack on three. Two-card money is a pretty good matchup against Stacks, isn't it? Because, I mean, they're playing their own workshop to help them get your spears and things like that. And they have yeah, and really fast wins. Yeah, their win condition is turn two on yeah. average. And I have no way of stopping that unless I rip my miser's pithing needle. Yeah, and I'm looking at his sideboard. It looks like he just brings in giant dudes against you, too. Cool. I do remember game two, though, because I was ramping the smokestacks like crazy. And I remember I had to have a smokestack ramp so high, I'd be too... Um, I cleared his board, and he had two worm coil engines out. <laughs> that was a nightmare. I was wondering, does the worm coil engine give you tokens but just when it goes to the graveyard, or is it when it leaves the play? That's when it goes to the graveyard. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you would have to deal with the first the worm coil and then the two tokens. One thing about his list is that he doesn't have goblin welders. Oh no, he does have goblin welders. That's that seems like a pretty good card in the matchup as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I was able to needle his welder game too, and then I stacked them out. You had a main deck tipping needle over the Trinisphere, right? Yes, correct. Needle has been a lot more successful than Trinisphere for me lately. And you don't find it running into. I mean, you're playing Chalice of the Void, are you not running into that? Are you not running it's not getting hit by uh, mental missteps? If I Chalice for one, it's probably the same as on turn five, after I have, like, four spheres out, and I rip Trinisphere. It's a dead card. Oh, you know, yeah, there's yeah, always right. going to be a dead card like that in the matchup. But um, I've actually had uh, Pithing Needle save me a few times, because um, if it was Trinisphere, it wouldn't be able to handle Jace. And there was a lot of times, like, turn four or five, my opponent would cast Jace, and, like, if I top that Trinisphere, I'm still blown out, but it was Needle. Well, right. needle Jace. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You could also needle Brand in the Oath matchup, which uh, is a lot better than having a Trinisphere. Well, yeah, then you're at least on the plan to draw a duplicate and win there. Yeah, or something. Yeah. So you beat Jake, uh, and then you moved on to the eventual winner, Steve Menendian, with his Burning Pendleses. Yeah, I kind of, like, designed this deck to go against that, hence the uh, sideboard with the Leyline of uh, Sanctities. And I don't think that I was able to um, perform as well because I wasn't on the play. And that's due to my foolish mistake of not playing it out in the Swiss. Uh-huh. But um, in game one... It shouldn't matter who's on the play if you have ley lines, right? Like, aren't you serum powdering it? Yeah. yeah, but um, his deck, that Oath deck is so powerful. Like, game one, I don't know what the win percentage is with the goldfish of that, but his turn one, he laid down a Mox, a Pro Mox, and I believe he imprinted... Maybe a Dark Ritual or something. I don't know. I didn't read his tournament report yet. I haven't read it either, but I figured I would get the other side of the report from you. Yeah. He passed to me, and of course I started laying down the spheres and everything, and uh, in response to my spheres and stuff, he vamped for, I want to say, Forbidden Orchard, because he had an oath in his hand. So his turn two was Orchard, and then uh, turn three I couldn't find a duplicate or anything to kill his Bristlebrands. Game two, I kind of cut oh, a risky hand. What's that? Going back to game one, did he beat you just by attacking with Grizzle Brand, or did he use it to combo up? I don't know. I think I just stopped paying attention after I knew I was done for. <laughs> I mean, for a while. yeah, I, well, there's only so much you can do, like when he's like drawing right. seven or 14 cards. Nah, I think he just beat me down. Yeah, well, taking seven a turn. Is- yeah, well, it's the seven cards and permanence he's able to lay down and put that deck so far ahead. But um, on to game two, I I kept, it was, it wasn't a, it was kind of a shaky hand. I probably was a little greedy. And it was, uh, Leyline of Sanctity, Mishra's Factory, uh, Mock Sapphire, Tangle Wire, Tolarian Academy, and there's some other bunkers in there. I don't know. So good enough for me to keep. Uh-huh. And then, um, turn zero, I had my Leyline of Sanctity in play, cast my Factory, and first, I cast a Moxin. I don't know why. Maybe I thought I could get the rest of the way or, Something. And then his turn one, he just blew it up randomly, which he must have thought I was uh, short on mana, so that negated my curve out into Tolarian, into Tangle Wires, into Morris Spears. I was behind the eight ball in that game. And then um, he played Drago for a while. 
I don't believe I drew a single mana source for seven turns. Oh. So, yeah, he built up, and I think I think he ended the game with, like, three ancient tombs in play and, like, 41 empty the Warren stones. Oh, wow. Did he burning wish for empty the Warrens, or did he afford it? No, he burning wish for it. Yeah, but it was a blow-up. But I'm going to get him at Gen Con, so it's all good. All right, that sounds good. We'll look forward to that. Looking more at your deck, you're playing Duplicant over Pyrexia Metamorph. With that Prison Smokestack strategy, I don't want them to still be able to have a permanent. Yeah, yeah. Duplicant takes that away. The MVP of my deck, though, would be Karn Silver Golem. Every oh, yeah. time he hit, the game was over. Well, sure. It's a bunch of stacks artifacts in play. Doesn't just attack with all of them. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know how to put it. It's kind of like it's my version of Empty the Warrens, I guess. I was very happy with the how well the deck performed. That style of workshops isn't for everyone, though. Yeah. Do you ever have an opening where you had Dipping Needle and wished it was Trinity? Um, no, not actually. I was just wondering because I know that was a big thing last time that we talked about. The, uh, yeah, I do. I do. How mad Trinisphere is, and, and and all of us just agreed with you, and everyone now thinks we're all idiots. What? That, that's fine. That's fine. But there was a time I was playing um Charles Ralco, and I knew he was on dredge because like we always BS at the tournaments and stuff. And um, my opening hand, I had the Miser's Pithing Needle, and if it was a Trinisphere. If it was a Trinisphere, I'm blown out. But then I just laid it down, and I was like, boom, bizarre. <laughs> That's kind of mize as it is. Right. I slowed him down for a few turns, and then uh, he ingot chewed it, and then he killed me. But I, <laughs> I like that that ultimately ended with nothing. Thank you. Yeah. It was, it was um, so cool, and then it went down to nothing. You also have only two Thorn of Amethyst rather than the full set of spears. Yeah. I chose to uh, run duplicates over those other thorns. And plus, like, the format right now, I think Vintage is more creature-heavy than ever right now. And, uh, it doesn't do anything to stop Dark Confidant or Snapcaster Mage. It does add to the spell that Snapcaster Mage may target. It doesn't stop all, like, if you play against Rug Delver, it doesn't stop against their, their beatdown. And it's, I find it kind of, I guess, uh, awful in the mirror match, too, because it doesn't stop Lopes on Golems, or Metal Workers, or Kadolphas. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, did you, did you have any, any other interesting plays? Did you, did you get to blow anyone out with the, the smokestack beyond the, the one on three and the one on two you had at versus Jake? Um, I didn't really, I had a smokestack at two a few other times, but I, I think the one thing that I learned most is like, I was very, very aggressive for my Saren Poggers. If I didn't have, like, workshop or two threats by turn one, or, or three threats by turn two, I just Saren would have powered it away. Not even looking, just like, whoop, it was gone. It just fueled my deck. Like, I will, Serum powder is awful as it is, and I've talked a lot of crap on that card before. It was like really, it just treated me really well up there. Yeah, I remember you used to make fun of me for playing, and now you're playing it. I know. It's funny how the world works, isn't it? I'll make fun of both of you. <laughs> I don't, I don't hold it against you. Yeah. I, I like that card. I've liked it in workshops before. Yeah. Like the power of your workshop deck goes way up when you have your namesake card, which is workshop in the world. And I, I think, um, if I wasn't running card, I would probably cut them. So if you weren't going to run Karn, you wouldn't run Karn? Oh, you wouldn't run Serum Power. Yeah, yeah, the Serum Power. You, th- you, so you think that them attacking for three under Karn, is that significant, that they go together? I was able to animate Serum Powders and swing for the win when Karn would come into play. It's way better than animating one of your Moxies. Absolutely. That's true. <laughs> but, like, if I was going to switch to a more an even more prison-heavy deck, like with Null Rods, and, like, I would cut all of those. But I don't think no, that's that good right now. You think Mistress Factory is better than something like Buried Ruin or Cavern of Souls or something like that? I think Cavern of Souls has its applications in like Workshop Aggro deck. Right. Cavern of Souls would make Karn and Lodestone Golem uncountable. I guess that's true. I'm just I, I'm just wondering. I'm not <laughs> saying like Cavern. No, but like I like the factories because after you have like a Tangle Wire and multiple spears out, like you're not going to be casting in many things, and you could like solely pink for two. And like those, that incremental like damage adds up over time, you know. Vicious factories can get big and scary pretty quickly too. Like if you attack a few of them, or if you have one to pump another, like. Yeah, and um, I find that the factories also also help a lot in the mirror because right. they trade with Lodestone like Golem if they don't have like the summoning sickness to turn you play them. Right. Yeah. Blocking with a three-three factory kills a lot of stuff in Vintage. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that just dies, and obviously, as you said, it can trade with Lodestone. That's. Mm-hmm. Constantly forget that. Yeah, I've killed a number of your bobs with factories when you. I know. <laughs> yeah, but well. it's also uh like infinite blocker if you have the crucible out too. 
which I mean that's very very big in the mirror. Yeah. And against something like creature be dumb strategies. And you like your sideboard with the maze of it could be, or did you uh, you can play against a whole lot of creature decks? Yeah. No, I like my sideboard. I think. Um, How did you board against Steve? I took out one silver got one Karn, one duplicate. I took out um pithy needle. I took you Oh no, hold on. Let me read this. Yeah, Duplicant and Needle both seem decent against Burning Long. But the problem is most Burning Long pilots side into Lab Name. Really? Yeah. Which I said that multiple times during the tournament because I saw Steve's uh, premium article. So I took out my needles. Like, no, going off of his article and knowing what he was going to do, I took out my needles. I took out two Crucible of Worlds, and I took out a card, and I brought in my little one Sanctities. Did he indeed go into Lapman? Yes, he did, actually. Wow. Yeah. And I also took out my Mana Crypt for a Tabernacle. Do that into the ones if I had it. Oh, yeah. That was my sideboard strategy. Everything else stayed in. Yeah, that seems all right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a shame that you lost to Steve. I was looking forward to hearing of your glorious triumph over the Dark Lords of the Sith. I don't know. He got me. Last time we battled, he got, I got him though, so. Okay. It goes back and forth. That's why I'm going to get him next year at Gen Con. Ah, uh, yeah, Gen Con. You better save that up because, uh, he'll be there. Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> it's funny because Nat and I were at a family party the night before and we were both agreeing that we probably weren't going to make it down for the tournament and Nat said, yeah, I figure I'll just leave first and second to Tuan and, and Smen and we'll call it good. And that's exactly what turned out to happen. Yeah. yeah. Jeff's the only one who knows this, but I definitely predicted the outcome of this one. He did? <laughs> oh. Nice. I'm, I don't know whether to laugh or cry, or maybe I'll just be flattered. Well, I, I left the possibility open for you to win. Yeah, I tried. I tried. Yeah. But I think I might switch it up a little bit for the next tournament. I don't know. Okay. Do you have any ideas, or are you just... I, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm going to go for... I think I'm going to take the Serum Potters out and Ley Lines and go for a more like, traditional stats build. Yeah, well, there probably still won't be a lot of burning law in Ohio. Yeah. yeah, the problem is, though, with my sideboard, it's kind of soft to certain decks. Like, I don't have dismembers. I have no, like, way to remove a uh, threat that's on the board already, outside of the smokestack. And we'll duplicate, I guess. Yeah, well, good luck next time. Well, thank you. So the three of us were together last week along with a, a group of Team Serious players at the Star City Games Columbus Open. I think most of us were just there for the food. Yeah, probably half of us didn't play or ended up wishing they hadn't played. Most of us that traveled down there, we came down with the intention of playing like uh, Sanctioned Vintage and like yeah. just getting that out there, you know. That was actually our plan. We were planning on doing some demos of Sanctioned Vintage. We did play a lot of vintage between Saturday and Sunday, although I think our advertising needed a little bit of food. Yeah, we didn't get the word out very well, we but there were multiple times when people would come around and be like, this is the most interesting gaming going on in this room. And we had a lot of people who were like really psyched about seeing some vintage and talking about it. Power. A lot of yeah. people were excited about seeing actual pieces of power on the board. Yeah, I remember um, this one judge came over and like he was talking with us about the format for about like 20, 25 minutes, I believe. And like, I remember like he came over and he's like, are those CE? I'm like, no, it's just like, it's real beta power. I'm like, <laughs> he straight up was like, that just made my day, you know? And it's, I, sometimes you forget like what it's like not to be inventive. You know, you just hear legends about these cards. There's actually a lot of people who haven't seen the real cards before. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, I mean, sometimes I think that like us people, well, people who own power and vintage forget that, you know? You forget what it's like to see, like, the elusive black lotus, you know? Yeah. It's mythical. Well, we did have a good time uh, testing some vintage, and then the rest of the time we... Um, we Tested pretty, food. <laughs> yeah, we pretty much ate food. For those of you who are familiar with the uh, Columbus gaming venue that means convention center, there's a really good market that's, like, a block away that just has a whole bunch of stalls for food and drink and that's good stuff that you can go and they're open... Conveniently during tournament hours, they're open on the weekends from noon to five, I think. Yeah. And um, so on Saturday, we all went over there for lunch. I had a Vietnamese pho, which is sort of like a beef soup with noodles and some greens in it. 
It was delicious. It cost me seven bucks, and I had a huge bowl of food. Yeah, I think that the pho is by far the best value to be had that I saw at the North Market. And yeah. people who got it, were dev- it, it, it was receiving rave reviews. Yeah, uh, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, I didn't realize they had that. I would have gotten that too. Yeah. Yeah, on Saturday, um, I went to the Taste of Belgium stall, and I picked up a crepe made with 100% beet flour. And that's, that's beet the vegetable, not wheat the grain? Yeah, beet the vegetable. And okay. it was purple, in fact. And it was filled with spiced turkey, I forget the kind of cheese, and also a kind of salsa. And it was quite delicious, I must say. I saw them making some of their waffles as well, and they looked excellent. Not only did they look excellent, but they smelled amazing. Yeah, like, I could totally smell, like, the maple syrup and, like, that just pancake batter, waffle batter, just yeah, baking. What did you have for lunch on Saturday, Bon? Um, I had chicken vindaloo from this Indian place. It was great, and it was only, like, seven bucks, and it was literally a pile of food. It was really good. I liked it. It reminded me of the vindaloo that I had when I was in England. Oh, now that that's an Indian place. Do you have anything else with that? Was it? No, I just had that and some rice and um some naan, which is just like some bread. Actually, one of the breakout things that I had at the market was on Sunday, I was busy dominating my legacy to a right. 5-1 and 3 finish. G got me a fruit smoothie from the smoothie bar at Robert's, and that was amazing. Jeff and I both enjoyed drinks from there, too. Yeah. Uh, it was like drinking liquid platinum and gold. Did yours have tapioca bubbles in it? No, no, it wasn't a bubble tea. It was more of a fruit smoothie. I uh, opted out of the bubble tea because I had some in Cleveland before I transferred to Columbus the day before. Jeff, you had your first experience with bubble tea. What did you think? Yeah, Nat put me up to this. He said I should try it out. I was willing to go for it. He got a smoothie with it, and I followed suit. I had their raspberry rhapsody with tapioca pearls. Raspberry strawberry smoothie with tapioca pearls in it. Right, right, exactly. And I, I had raspberry banana. Nat, Nat described it as like eating fish eyes. You can definitely see where that comes from. They, they seemed like they had sort of a soft exterior and a very chewy interior. I didn't feel like they picked up a lot of the smoothie flavor. I felt like oftentimes I would sort of drain out the smoothie in my mouth and I just end, would end up with some tasteless pearl jelly. I thought it was very interesting, and I would be interested to get it in tea rather than a smoothie to see how it turns that. I don't know whether I would get it in a smoothie again. Yeah, I had the raspberry, a similar raspberry smoothie uh, bubble in it, and uh, I was kind of kind of a little put off, and this was totally my fault because I should have known, but uh, it, a lot of the raspberry seeds get sort of in the bottom of your drink. So what you end up with, like, the top part is very good, and then as you go farther down, you end up with lots of little seedy things that you end up drinking, and it's just sort of a, a disappointment as you're finishing this delicious beverage. It's funny, because I actually like to put raspberries in my smoothie, because I like the sort of added seediness to them. Yes, you do appreciate seedy things. I do. Also on Sunday, I had a, um, it was a rustic sweet bun. It was from the, uh, the bakery that they have in the corner of the North Market. That was delicious. It, it was basically just like a sourdough roll that had dry fruit in it and then was sprinkled with powdered sugar. Man, it was good. It was yeasty and so warm and firm. It was great. It looked pretty good. Yeah. You had the uh, the Omega cake. Yeah. Right? The, on Saturday, after I had my lunch crepe, I was like, you know, I really need something else. And Matt was like, you should go down to the Omega market and get the Omega cake. And I was like, all right, I'm doing it. So I went down and I found the Omega cake and I bought it. The Omega cake is like a small disc of chocolate cake on which is a bunch of buttercream. It's probably a, a sphere about the size of a silver dollar. Yeah, there's like a half cup of buttercream. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty intense. And then that, that entire thing is dipped in chocolate. And that is the Omega cake. And I talked to her, um, the girl about the, the proper way to eat it because I was like, do I like do I fork and a knife this thing, or just I, do I two-fist it? And she said, everybody has their own, way, their own way of doing it. Just make sure that you you wait a couple of minutes to let the buttercream uh, warm up, to let the chill get off, because otherwise it's going to be kind of firm. I don't think I waited quite long enough, because it still was a little bit firm, but the thing was freaking delicious and definitely dangerous to my health. <laughs> How yeah, many calories? I do not ask. I do not know. I do not want to know. See, it's got to be like 1,500. That thing was just yeah. 
It was pure like Omegatron. Hello, like it was insane. <laughs> they call it the Omega because it's the last cake you'll ever eat. Yeah. No, I can believe yeah. it. I watched you eat it. You were smiling from ear to ear. It was real good. Also on Sunday, I had some donuts in one of the stalls there. I tried a pumpkin pecan donut and a Thai peanut donut. Both donuts were excellent. They were they were soft and uh, nice and spicy. The uh, the peanut donut. Uh, I was expecting there to be a little bit more chili or basil taste, so it'd be a little bit more Thai food, but um, but it was still very good. It, it had a subtle spice to it. What else did we have on Sunday? When you got your Omega Market bounty, I got a calzone from the Italian place there, the pizza place, and I have uh-huh. to say that it was adequate, but it wasn't that good. It was the sausage calzone, and their cheese and sauce mixture had fully impregnated all of the bread, so it just ended up being kind of a soupy mess. Uh, it was it was okay, but I would not get it again. How was the sausage? Was it good? The sausage was good. On Sunday for lunch, I had I noticed this when we walked in on Saturday. There was a the vegetarian place that had corn potato coconut chowder, and I saw that and was immediately intrigued because who puts coconut in a soup? But I got it. And I was surprised. It was it was very good. The coconut was subtle. You could taste that it was coconut, but it wasn't it wasn't overpowering. And the rest of the you know the vegetables were nicely cooked. It was well seasoned. It was good. It was a little hot. I burned myself, but, but it was good. Man, you guys ate so much more food than me on Sunday That's because you were playing we magic with the chump. Yeah, we no, I was I was battling to the top, and we were eating to the top. But you failed. We won. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we had a plan of eating every three hours on Sunday, and it pretty much worked out. Sure did. Oh, yeah. That was pretty good. That's actually one of the most, like, beneficial spots. There's also, um, I haven't been to Philadelphia in a while, but when they held tournaments in their convention center, they had a running terminal market. They're just really nice and convenient to, like, shoot out to and get some good food. And then, yeah. what is it? What is it called? Is it North Star Market or just North Market? Just North Market. But yeah, it's, it's really nice to be able to go to the markets and have an option of different things, and all of them seem to be pretty decent quality. I mean, it's not like going to a food court at a mall. It's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. I'm Twan P. Ponertown, pseudo-Sith assassin. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see. You cannot use tasteless pearl jelly in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>